Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 148. On today's show, we talk to Andrew Lawler about his new book, Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. Let's dig a little deeper. Our guest today is Andrew Lawler. He is the author of the newly released book, Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. A longtime journalist, he has written about archaeology for more than two decades for a host of magazines. His most recent piece was the cover story for the November National Geographic on the 100 Greatest Archaeological Discoveries. For more, see www.andrewlawler.com. Now on to the show. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Well, we usually start with where Rachel and I are at because we're in a different place every week practically. But right now, for logistical reasons, I'm actually in Reno in my old podcast studio at the Reno Collective. But Rachel couldn't join me for various logistical challenges because of microphones that I didn't bring <laughs> and other reasons. So, But that being said, we still have a great interview for you today. And as I read in the bio in the introduction, I want to welcome Andrew Lawler to the show. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And you guys may not know it, but you've probably read some of his stuff, given how prolific he is in various publications that people interested in archaeology and history have read from Archaeology Magazine to National Geographic uh, most recently, and I'm sure before that. And he's written several books, too. And that's why we're talking to him today about his new book called Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. So before we get to that, I want to know, with as much as you've written as a journalist about a lot of these topics, you clearly have a sort of a bend towards archaeology and history. How did that develop? Well, I began as a journalist in Washington writing about the space program and about science policy and doing kind of that nerdy thing of covering Capitol mm -hmm. Hill. And then I got, a, I got tired of writing every possible budget story that could be written about science. And I, I managed to wrangle a fellowship to MIT for science journalists who are in, you know, basically it's a fellowship for science journalists in midlife crisis. And mm -hmm. I, I decided, well, yeah, I've always been interested in archaeology. I can take any course I want at MIT or Harvard. So I always loved Mesopotamia for reasons that are nice. a little obscure, uh, mainly because Egypt gets all of the the attention, right? But you know, Mesopotamia was first, let's just admit it. And That's right. so I, I took a course on Mesopotamian archaeology from a Harvard professor named uh, Carl Lambert Karlovsky, who looked just like he sounded, you know, tall guy <laughs> with 
big white hair who had this beautiful deep voice. And we got to be friends. And one day he said, you know, by the way, there's going to be a conference in Baghdad for archaeologists. Do you want to come? Hmm. I thought, well, why not? And luckily, my editors, I was a staff writer for Science Magazine at the time. They mm-hmm. agreed for whatever reason. And so I went to Baghdad. This is in 2001, uh, so before nice. the war. And so that kind of cut my teeth. It was me and maybe 50 archaeologists on a bus. We traveled all through Iraq, went to all the famous sites, Ur, Uruk, Nineveh, you name it. And mm-hmm. that really gave me the bug. So for the next, for the past 20 years, that's what I've been doing. Wow. That is really cool. You know, coincidentally, on one of the other podcasts I host, the Architect Podcast, my co-host Paul has been, he got his PhD actually uh, way back in the late 90s uh, studying essentially Mesopotamian archaeology and and that, that area around there. And he just got back from a trip to Iraq where he was actually doing some drone flights for some stuff that they did. So that was, uh, that was really cool. Hearing a lot about Iraq lately. So it's a fascinating place for sure. Moving on then, you just continue to write about archaeology and and historical topics. And that leads us up to the book we're talking about now. So what got you interested in writing about Jerusalem? Well, let me be clear. I had no interest in writing about archaeology in Jerusalem. Why? (laughs) Because I was in other parts of the Middle East where you don't even want to mention the name of Israel. Sure. But, But mainly because Jerusalem seemed like such a terrible mix of politics and religion that, you know, how could you do science there and what would that be like? And I I did a couple of stories here and there. I did visit Jerusalem as a journalist, but I I steered clear because it all seemed too complicated and too fraught and uh, too Mm -hmm. challenging. It was so much easier to go to a site in Jordan in the desert and write about what archaeologists were digging there in a place where maybe there was a nearby village. But other than that, there was nothing. So you just wrote about the past. But Jerusalem, of course, is quite different. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. So what took you back there? Well, I went back to Israel for a conference on crusader archaeology. And I was in Jerusalem for a few days. And one of the famous Israeli archaeologists, Israel Finkelstein, suggested that we go on a little tour. He said, well, let's have lunch and then I'll show you some things. I thought, great, because Israel is, a, he's, he's known for liking, he married a French woman, he likes good food and wine. I thought, well, we'll have a long, leisurely lunch and then maybe we'll walk around a bit. Well, suffice it to say, I never got lunch that day. I never got anything. I think, I think we, I, I bought a little piece of bread on the side of the road as we were running to the next dig. But Israel took me below the city to places that I'd never seen, I didn't know existed. Uh, Mm. And I was fascinated because I had no idea that there was that kind of extensive archaeology going on there. You can see things that are being dug, but uh, what's underground is obviously invisible. So I was curious about that. And I also noticed that the archaeologists that he introduced me to, people like Elat Mazar, Joe Uziel, who figure prominently in my book, they would keep mentioning the names of these dead Englishmen. Oh, this was a tunnel built by Warren. This was a tunnel that Bliss and Dickey dug. (laughs) Who are these people? I I didn't really know. And over time, so I, I... Basically, I finagled a story. I I convinced National Geographic to send me to Jerusalem repeatedly to do a story uh, about Mm. what was going on there, uh, which was published in in December of 2019. It's the cover story called Under Jerusalem. And uh, they had had so much material that I knew 
it was going to be a book. It wasn't. It just it was too much to fit in the article. And I became fascinated by these characters, the early characters who began archaeology in Jerusalem. And then I realized, well, here's the book, because there is no book that talks about that history of essentially of archaeology in Jerusalem and how it affected uh, the city that we know today. Yeah, that's what I was wondering is what kind of gap were you trying to fill in the in the I guess literature about Jerusalem but talking about it's a little bit meta right talking about the actual people that dug the archaeology that you know uh, that gave us the history that we know about today about Jerusalem is pretty fascinating it's almost like a I guess a biography of the archaeologists that have excavated Jerusalem right yeah absolutely and I just took it chronologically yeah. so the first days sure. began in 1863. A Frenchman named Desolzi, I'm probably massacring his name, uh, <laughs> but he was a friend of the French emperor Napoleon III, who ran France like uh, like an emperor. And since he was close to uh, Napoleon III, he was able to wrangle a dig permit from the sultan in Istanbul. So the Ottoman Empire in those days, in the 19th century, controlled all the area around Jerusalem and most of the mm-hmm. Middle East. And so in order to dig there, you had to get permission from the sultan himself, particularly Jerusalem, since it was the sacred city to Muslims, Jews, as well as Christians. So it was already a a sensitive place. So he got the dig permit, and what he did really set the tone for everything that follows in the history of the city. Hmm. Okay. As we're looking at Jerusalem and we're looking at this archaeology, first off, I'm a little surprised at – you know, how important Jerusalem has been, given how important Jerusalem has been in history for the last, you know, several thousand years, that the first time it was excavated, I guess, officially archaeology was in the 1800s. But I guess when I think back on it, that's not too surprising because archaeology is a discipline and a science is not that old to begin with. So I guess that somewhat makes sense. I'm sure people were there beforehand looting artifacts and we wouldn't call it archaeology, <laughs> but definitely taking some things away, I would imagine. Yeah. And archaeology, as you mentioned, it really is it's a new discipline. It really wasn't until yeah. the late 1800s that you have, uh, for example, you know, being able to read pottery, stratigraphy, all these mm-hmm. basic ways in which we do archaeology today uh, was had to be developed. Uh, actually, Thomas Jefferson was the, the first that we know of who practiced stratigraphy uh, outside of at a, at a burial mound out near his home in Monticello in Virginia. But that's another story. Uh, <laughs> but the first people who were digging in Jerusalem should not be graced with the name archaeologists. These were explorers. These were adventurers. <laughs> these were looters. These were people who wanted to lug stuff back, as this French archaeologist did in 1863, to the Louvre. They wanted mm-hmm. to bring back the good stuff to show off to the rest of the world. Because this is the time when these colonial empires are expanding. This is a time when the British Museum and the Louvre and the museums in Berlin are all vying to get the good stuff to show that they are the most influential and powerful nation on earth. So that was very much a piece of how archaeology began in the city of Jerusalem. You know, that's making me think, and it might be jumping a little bit to the, uh, jumping a little bit to the end here, perhaps, but I don't know if you cover this in the book, but in recent times, I would say in the last few years, arguably in the last few decades, but it's really been in the news in the last few years that places like the British Museum have been taken to task for some of the things that they have and have been 
in some cases, returning them to the countries of origin. Do you know if that's happened with Jerusalem regarding the Louvre or the British Museum or anybody else that may hold uh, artifacts of importance from there? I know our listeners will not believe that (laughs) we didn't plant that question. (laughs) But yes, (laughs) yes, there is. There is very much an important case going on as we speak. That French archaeologist that I mentioned, who dug in 1863, he found in what's called the Tomb of the Kings, which is located just outside of the old city, he dug out a sarcophagus. And inside of that sarcophagus, he found the bones of what clearly was a royal woman. And Hmm. according to him, this was one of the ancient Judean queens mentioned in the Bible. So he hauled that back to the Louvre. And it became a sensation. It was the first time that people could go and see something that was clearly tied to the Bible. And in the 19th century, this was really big news. I mean, think of the King Tut exhibit in the 1970s that came to America times 10. Uh, This was really groundbreaking, uh, to use a bad pun. (laughs) Now, of course, it turned out that he was wrong. In fact, this woman was not, in fact, an ancient Judean queen. In fact, she wasn't even Judean. She was Jewish, but she came from northern Iraq. And that was the Hmm. assumption, actually, until recently. And I just published a story, the cover story in Biblical Archaeology Review, which revisits that and actually suggests that uh, it wasn't even her. It was a a later uh, royal woman who was buried maybe in the second, maybe the third century CE. So a thousand years after the ancient Judean queens. But anyway, to get back to the controversy. So this French archaeologist took the sarcophagus back to the Louvre, becomes a sensation. But the Jews in Jerusalem, as well as around the world, are outraged because to them, this is the desecration of a Jewish grave by this Christian explorer. And Hmm. there was a huge uproar over what had happened. And that uh, continues today because just a couple of years ago, a a Jewish group in Jerusalem sued not just the Louvre, but the French government demanding the sarcophagus back, Hmm. including the remains of this woman, saying that this belongs to the Jewish people. And the Louvre is saying, well, we don't really know where those bones are anymore. And it's become uh, a real irritant between uh, in relations between Israel and France. Already their relations have been a little fraught. So there's an example where even the the first dig, 150 years plus, (laughs) is still causing trouble, is still uh, running up lawyers' bills. I always wonder about organization in museums. How many times do you see an article that's like, oh, something was discovered and it's changed the face of archaeology or this topic as we know it. And it was discovered in a museum in a box on a shelf somewhere unlabeled (laughs) where it's like, what is this? And and they're saying they've lost this thing. Yeah, they have. Sure. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So. I think to round out this segment, you mentioned in the book that uh, both Jews and Muslims were upset by early excavations. So why are the Muslims upset? Well, the man I mentioned earlier, Charles Warren, he was a famous British explorer of Jerusalem. He was called Jerusalem Warren. Mm-hmm. We got that name kind of like Gordon of Khartoum. And, <laughs> and he spent two or three years digging beneath Jerusalem and really was the first person to map what is beneath the city. But in mm-hmm. doing that, he had to make his way. He had to dig. He had to find his way through these passages, many of which had been blocked, uh, new foundations built of later buildings. So he used gunpowder to blast his way through. And this would be bad enough. I mean, imagine somebody with 
kegs of gunpowder below your house. Uh, <laughs> but he was doing this right next to Islam's third holiest shrine, the Dome of the Rock, located on the what Jews call the Temple Mount, what um, uh, Muslims call the Noble Sanctuary. So this did not endear him to the Arabs, the Arab Muslims who lived in Jerusalem. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were mad not just at him, they were mad at the Ottomans, because the Ottomans were the people, they were Muslims too, they were the ones who were supposed to be able to protect Islam's holy sites. So this really was uh, the beginning of Palestinian Arab nationalism, uh, actually, in a sense. So the archaeology that took place in the 1860s profoundly shaped uh, the course of Jerusalem and, and, to a certain extent, the history of the world. Wow. Okay. Well, we will dive into that a little bit, I'm sure, in the later segments. So let's go ahead and take a break and come back and continue talking to Andrew Lawler about his new book, Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. And maybe we'll find out exactly why it's contested when we get back. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, (laughs) we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to episode 148 of the Archaeology Show. And we are talking to Andrew Lawler about his new book. You can find it in the show notes as well as his uh, link to his website. So go check that out. And it's got his other books and, and some publications on there. So... We just started getting into, at the end of the last segment, what makes Jerusalem a contested city. And you actually write that it's possibly the world's most contested place. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Jerusalem is really at the heart of what you might call the the world's biggest geopolitical knot. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a place that is sought after as the capital of two distinct nations, of two different peoples. Uh, it's a place where three religions are constantly vying for control. Mm-hmm. It's a place where even within, for example, the Holy Sepulchre, where the Christ by tradition was crucified and buried, is the scene of you know intense rivalry among Christian sects. So at every level you look at, Jerusalem is a place of conflict and only occasionally of cooperation. And I don't think you can mm-hmm. say that about uh, any other city on the planet. And certainly Jerusalem's long history, I think it's been besieged maybe 50 times, it's been completely destroyed a couple of times, innumerable attacks, famines, you name it. Everything bad that could happen to a city has happened to Jerusalem. Yeah, and that's that's what makes... I guess, Jerusalem archaeology, for lack of a better way to say that, so interesting because, you know, there's an entire publication uh, called Biblical Archaeology, and there's an entire set of archaeologists, of course, that set out with a, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would call it an exactly scientific premise, but they, they set out with a, sem- a premise to prove either the Bible or whatever the religious text of, of preference is to prove it true. Whereas, of course, with most scientists, you set out with a question and you just try to find evidence that, you know, either supports it or doesn't either way. And you report on that. Right. But a lot of biblical archaeology sets out to kind of prove it true. And then if they don't prove it true, it it can sometimes get <laughs> kind of swept under the rug. Do you know if and I can just imagine the answer, but do you know what the real motivations were to a lot of the early excavations uh, and really, quite frankly, probably a lot of the current excavations that are going on there? Was it uh, along those lines, uh, not just pure archaeology research, but to, in, in an attempt to take something that's in the Bible or, or other texts and say, you know, here's the here's the proof or otherwise of that item. There was a man uh, who was an American theologian named Edward Robinson. And in mm-hmm. the 1830s, he showed up in Jerusalem. Now, he was very conservative in his biblical views, and he was really appalled by what was happening in theology, people were, were starting to question the Bible. Not mm-hmm. only that, you had people that were geologists who were calling into question Genesis. So Christianity was entering a major crisis, and he sensed this. So he decided that the best way to combat this skepticism was to use science itself. So he showed mm-hmm. up in Jerusalem with his measuring tapes and his compasses and his telescopes and began to map things because he wanted to show that what the Bible said was true. And this was the beginning of biblical archaeology. And for the first, well, let's say well into the 20th century, this was the raison d'etre of biblical archaeology. It was to show that the Bible, rather than to show the Bible was true, was rather to demonstrate that what the Bible said could be shown in the archaeological evidence that was dug up. So absolutely, from the beginning, that was the goal. Now, of course, biblical archaeology has evolved uh, in some cases. In other cases, there are still uh, small schools here in the United States that dig in what they call the Holy Land, and they are seeking Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's Mm -hmm. a very similar group, a, a very similar goal by a small number of biblical archaeologists. But most today... Uh, no longer see the Bible as as necessarily the literal truth, but many still use it as a kind of guide. Yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily a religious person, but I do recognize a, a text that was written in a certain time frame as undoubtedly having some truths, right? Some historical truths, even if it's just 
mentioning, uh, you know, things like clothing styles and customs and traditions and stuff like that. There's always going to be some truths even to something like that. I mean, you look at some of the religious writings, even in hieroglyphs on Egyptian tombs. Yeah, it's a lot of hyperbole and some some crazy stuff, but there is some truth to it, obviously. And it's just looking at the style. So I totally understand that. Now, of course, one of the possible side effects of trying to go there with the premise of proving something true in the Bible is that you may find some contradictions. <laughs> Do you know of any circumstances that come to mind where where that may have happened? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think the, the most fun example I can give you was back in the 1880s. You mm-hmm. had uh, a missionary from Germany named Conrad Schick, who uh, became an architect and also an archaeologist, really one of the first distinguished archaeologists in Jerusalem. And he was very much a Protestant, very much believed kind of the Protestant line. Well, the big debate at that time was where was Jesus crucified and buried? Now, mm-hmm. by tradition, that was the Holy Sepulchre, right? There was no question. It was the Holy Sepulchre. Catholics and Greek Orthodox and a hundred other sects believed that to be true. <laughs> but the Protestants were skeptical. Partly this was sour grapes because they didn't have a piece of the Holy Sepulchre because it's a fairly mm. new faith. And they didn't like going inside this dark, dingy building that was filled with incense and chants that seemed very idolatrous to them, to these kind of Calvinist Puritans. They wanted the kind of the brightly lit uh, garden that they were taught was the case in Sunday school, right? So Conrad Schick believed this. He believed, well, the Holy Sepulchre is, it's, it's, it's a fake. It's not really the real place. And it wasn't totally sour grapes because the Gospels do make it clear that Jesus was crucified and buried outside of the walls of Jerusalem. The Holy Sepulchre, however, is located kind of toward the middle of the old city hmm. of Jerusalem, within the walls. So it seemed a contradiction. Now, this man named, I mentioned him earlier, Gordon of Khartoum, he was a, a general, British general. He became absolutely convinced while he was on sabbatical in Jerusalem. He was a bit of an odd Protestant mystic. He became convinced that a, a hill outside of Jerusalem, just north of the city, looked like a skull. Golgotha huh. is the Arab word, the, the Aramaic word for skull. And so he became convinced that that was the place of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus. So eventually that got a lot of attention from Protestants. Meanwhile, our friend Conrad Schick, the German missionary, he decided to dig to find out what was true. So he partnered with the Russians, of all people, and so this German and Russian began these digs just to the east of the Holy Sepulchre. And sure enough, they found walls that showed that in the first century, in fact, the Holy Sepulchre lay outside of the walls, therefore bolstering Hmm. this tradition. But meanwhile, so Conrad Schick, he accepted this and said, even though my faith tells me that the Holy Sepulchre is not the place, science tells me it is, so I believe the science. You know, he really <laughs> went with the data. Now, Charles Gordon, uh, our British general, did not. He continued to push this idea until he was killed in Khartoum by a, by a Muslim mystic, as, as luck would have mm. it. And yeah. eventually, a, a bunch of old ladies in England got together and they bought this land north of Jerusalem, they turned into what's called the Garden Tomb. And that today is a place where many Protestants go in order to remember the place of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Now, there's no archaeological evidence that any of the tombs in this lovely garden area are even from the first century, much less <laughs> that of Jesus. But you know, sometimes science and faith just don't see eye to eye in Jerusalem, which is 
partly why it's such a fascinating place. Wow. Yeah, it really is. There's just been so much done there. And you've mentioned a lot of people so far. And I, I'm really, we, we set this interview up pretty quick. So I didn't even have time to get the book from your publisher yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm looking forward to actually reading it, especially through the lens of, of conducting this interview. So and you mentioned also, you know, you, you go through the history of, you know, archaeology excavations in Jerusalem. Who are some of your, I guess, standout favorites that have excavated in the area and why? Oh, boy. There's so <laughs> many to choose from. I mean, Charles Warren, who is the, the British explorer who dug in the 1860s, is fascinating because I discovered that he was a mason. And hmm. his real goal, even though he was there as a as a scientist, a geographer, a geologist, uh, working for the Palestine Exploration Fund, he actually was, was there in order to find remains of Solomon's temple, which is of great importance to Masons. So he's really an interesting character, but I'd say the winner in the sweepstakes of, of interesting <laughs> or obsessive <laughs> Jerusalem archaeologists, uh, or let's say excavators, would be a British aristocrat named Montague Brownlow Parker. Oh, that's a British now, name. Oh, yeah. So Montague Brownlow Parker, who was the brother of an earl, he uh, decided that he was going to go find the Ark of the Covenant and the temple treasures. Mm. The temple treasures being all the gold and silver mentioned in the Bible that was there in Solomon's temple that vanished at some point. And the question is, what happened to these important and valuable objects? So he put together what has to be the zaniest excavation team on planet Earth of all times. It was led in part by this Finnish poet who had gotten his PhD in theology and believed that he had cracked a code in the Bible uh, in Ezekiel that told us where those temple treasures were hidden. They were hidden mm -hmm. in a tunnel beneath what's called the City of David, this area just south of the Temple Mount or Noble Sanctuary, the city's Acropolis. And there was also a, a Swiss psychic who came aboard, and he had different ideas about where the temple treasures were. But, you know, it's always good to have two people with an idea of where something is. And there was even a, a steamboat captain from the Congo, hmm. this guy with this curly mustache who was on the Congo River at the same time that Conrad was on there and about to write his, his book, Heart of Darkness. So you can't make up a more bizarre collection of people. The one, and also uh, a friend of Parker's who was a famous cricket player was also a uh, part of the team. Now of they course. did, they did neglect to hire an archeologist, which was a bit of an issue. In fact, when they got to Jerusalem, people were so outraged. The farm community was so outraged that, that this crazy group of people were going to dig in one of the most important sacred places and most important historic places in the world that they demanded that he hire, uh, that he bring on an archaeologist. So this French monk who lived in Jerusalem kind of monitored the dig, although he didn't do actual digging himself. So these people spent two years digging these massive tunnels and searching and searching. Of course, they didn't find anything. They worked 24-7. They had pumps to bring in air. It was a highly sophisticated operation that included the person who would design London's uh, tube, London's subway system. Uh, this mm -hmm. is around 1911, we're talking. So finally, at the end of a couple of years, they haven't found a thing except a bunch of potsherds that were of no interest to, to these people. And they decided, Parker decided, he had a brilliant idea. I will bribe the guard at the Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary, what Jews call the Temple Mount, this <laughs> sacred, third most holiest site in Islam. 
He bribes the guards to go away. And they go away. He goes in with a small team to hammer away at the rock that is underneath the Dome of the Rock. This is probably the most sacred spot on earth because Christians and Jews and Muslims all consider it for different reasons to be the place where Isaac was was about to be sacrificed by Abraham, Jacob's ladder, you name it. There's a legend attached (laughs) to this rock. So he's hammering away at this rock in the middle of the night. And the story goes that there's a sleepless Muslim wanders up there, hears the hammering, goes in, blows the whistle, and these guys have to rush out of town before the mob kills them. Wow. Now, you know, it sounds like a, a crazy story. It is, but it, it's also very important because as a result of this incident, which was kind of treated as kind of comic opera in the West, the Muslims <laughs> in Jerusalem were not amused. And they decided that this proved that the Ottoman rulers of Jerusalem were no longer capable of protecting Islamic holy sites, particularly the Dome of the Rock and the the, uh, Noble Sanctuary. And as a result of that, of course, you have the beginning of Palestinian Arab nationalism. So we see where these excavation efforts, which are kind of cute stories, uh, also have tremendous implications for Jerusalem today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and people have used archaeological evidence if they want to look at the right things to bolster their nationalism uh, in cultures across the planet, of course. So yeah, it's, uh, it's totally crazy. Um, moving on and, and starting to wrap this up a little bit uh, for segment three, you mentioned you go chronologically in this book on the history of Jerusalem. I'm just interested real quick, how far in the future do you go? I mean, in the future, how far close to the present do you go with your discussion of archaeologists? Well, I came back from my last reporting trip to Jerusalem in December of 2019, (laughs) which, of Mm -hmm. course, was right before the pandemic. In fact, I stopped in Paris on my way back. I wanted to see that sarcophagus that's in the Louvre that was dug out by our Frenchman in 1863. And it was a rainy day. The line was long. I couldn't get to the press person. And I thought, you know, I'm coming back in the spring. The Louvre will always be there. Uh, So that's the one thing I didn't get to do was to go to the loop because, of course, the pandemic hit. So I was fortunate to have done all my reporting in time to be able to uh, to come home and spend a year writing it. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, let's take our final break and we'll wrap this up and and talk about some other ethical dilemmas and and things happening in Jerusalem and with uh, archaeologists in the area. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to The Archaeology Show, episode 148. And we are wrapping up this discussion with Andrew Lawler about... Under Jerusalem, his new book. And again, you can find that in the show notes at arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 148. Or just look down at your phone because you're probably listening to it on there. It's sitting right in front of you. So, okay. So we mentioned talking about archaeology up into present times and present in the context of your book because of the pandemic is 2019. <laughs> at least that's when you, when you were able to get up to doing your research. But listeners to this show know that 
we talk about news articles. One of the things we do on the show is we discuss current news articles through the lens of a couple of archaeologists. We're not experts in every field of archaeology and culture and, you know, society around the world, but we have maybe a different perspective on the way, well, quite frankly, journalists like yourselves report archaeological finds and information. And a lot of stuff comes out of Israel. A lot of stuff lately comes out of Israel. Now, I don't know a lot of stuff has been coming out of different areas in the last year and a half or so. And I think it's because people weren't able to do field work. So they got caught up on a lot of writing. <laughs> that was yes. good. That being said, there are obviously active ongoing excavations in Jerusalem. What, what impact does this, this legacy of excavation and the contested nature of, of some of the excavations, some of the people that have worked there, what impact do you think that has on, on Jerusalem today? Well, first of all, Jerusalem is, as far as I can tell, the most excavated city on earth. Hmm. There is no place that has so much excavation going on at any one time. You have well, massive so than, things going on. More so than like Rome, even. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll just give you one, one example. An enormous subway-sized tunnel is being bored through uh, what, what Jews call the City of David. What, for Muslims, it's mm -hmm. the the neighborhood of Wadi Hilwa, just south of the Temple Mount, the Noble Sanctuary. That is, I think, the certainly the most expensive archaeological project underway that's being done for archaeology. It's not being done to create a highway or to, it is being done to showcase a Roman era street. Uh, this is happening wow. underground, completely underground. So it's a phenomenally expensive, uh, as well as, uh, and from an engineering point of view, a very challenging project. And it's also probably the world's most controversial archaeological project because mm. it is underneath a Muslim, largely Muslim neighborhood. And it is showcasing what many Israeli politicians are saying is proof that Jerusalem was an important Jewish city back at the time of Jesus. But the archaeological evidence has shown that to be a little more complicated than the politicians <laughs> would like. I'm sure. I'm sure. What are some of those complications? Well, this Roman era street goes from a pool at the bottom of this hill, the Pool of Siloam, which is famous, it's yeah. mentioned in a gospel story, right up to the base of what was the Temple Mount back in the first century. Now, many people assumed that this street was built under the patronage of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the great Jewish ruler who was appointed by the Romans, who beautified Jerusalem, turned it into a really cosmopolitan city full of amazing classical architecture, made the Temple Mount, the kind of the Temple Mount that uh, people tend to think of today. And that seemed to be the case until the archaeologists found coins beneath the steps that had been built, particularly toward the bottom of this mammoth step street that uh, climbed the hill. And those coins showed a different story. And that is mm. that a man who was probably one of the most hated and despised people in human history was actually behind. This was Pontius Pilate. So Pontius mm -hmm. Pilate was the governor of Judea at the time, appointed by Rome. And apparently, during his reign, he oversaw the construction of this massive street that led up to the center of Jewish worship. So it paints a very different picture than we maybe have of the Romans being opposed to Judaism, uh, oppressing Judaism. In fact, here's a Roman ruler who is putting out a lot of time and effort and money to glorify the city. Now, of course, that mm. was partly to reflect back his own glory naturally, but uh, this is the kind of find that, that has stirred up 
some controversy. Actually, it's largely been ignored by Israeli politicians who tend to paint the Romans as, as kind of uh, ancient Nazis, if you will. <laughs> right, right. Wow. That's uh, There's always multiple sides to the Roman story, isn't there? The impact that they had on, on different parts of the world. Um, it's almost a joke in some podcasts to be like, okay, we're bringing up the Romans now because you almost inevitably have to. But uh, yeah. Well, look what the Romans did for us, as Monty Python famously <laughs> told us. In fact, the life of Brian, which some of your, your, your listeners may know, uh, is considered uh, its required viewing for Israeli antiquities <laughs> authority archaeologists coming on staff. Nice, nice. So apart from taxes, the roads, and sanitation, what have the Romans? No, I'm just kidding. Exactly. Uh, bringing it all back to me. <laughs> so I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, some a lot of the finds and, and reporting coming out of Israel lately and in that whole area. Can you tell me about some of the ethical dilemmas that you mentioned in the book uh, that is Israeli archaeologists, and there's a lot of, you know, is you know, born and raised Israeli archaeologists working in that area, um, working in Jerusalem. Can you play, explain some of the ethical dilemmas they may be facing? I think we've alluded to some of it so far. Yeah, absolutely. The, I'd say the, the first thing is, is that if you look at the, the history of digging in Jerusalem, as we've discussed in the, the past couple of segments, the, mm-hmm. from the beginning, the people that were digging underground were interested not in the people who lived above or in their heritage. They were interested in uncovering the biblical heritage. And so that's still true today. While a lot of archaeology doesn't touch on the biblical era, most of it in Jerusalem tends to. And the the piece that's new or or relatively new since 1967 is Mm -hmm. that when Israel conquered the old city and took over the old city, which is part of East Jerusalem, now according to international agreements, archaeologists, no one is supposed to dig in occupied territory. That is expressly forbidden by agreement signed by the state of Israel. Now, Mm -hmm. Israel says, yes, but we've annexed East Jerusalem. It's part of Israel now, so we no longer are obliged to speak with the Palestinians about whether or not we can do these digs. And until the past, say, 20 years or so, most archaeologists tended to steer clear of digging in East Jerusalem, in the old city, because of this kind of discomfort with you know, the international uh, opprobrium that was that was uh, put on Israel for mm-hmm. doing these digs. But but as Israel society, Israeli society has shifted to the right, archaeologists have begun to take part in these digs. So the most Obvious example is the Gavati dig, uh, which is uh, there around the city of David. It's a massive dig that's happening, one of the largest and longest of the digs happening in Jerusalem. And it was controlled at first by the Israeli Antiquities Authority, but now Tel Aviv University is taking part. And Tel Aviv was long considered to be a very liberal place that didn't want to have anything to do with something that could be considered illegal. Uh, but now they have right. thrown thrown in with uh, the IAA in order to do this dig. Uh, so that has been highly controversial. I've got a, actually a story about the Gavadi parking lot coming out in, I think, next month's Archaeology magazine, which goes into mm. more detail, both about the, the science as well as mentioning the politics of this. So it's a, it's a changing, the, the ethics of digging in Jerusalem have been changing over time, or, or let's say the willingness of archaeologists to confront the ethical dilemmas is no longer uh, what it was, say, 20 years ago. Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess with that, you also argue in the book that 
archaeology, and I, I got to talk about this, archaeology has had a bigger impact in Jerusalem than anywhere else in the world. And I'm curious as to what would make you say that, given, I mean, we mentioned Egypt at the beginning of the show. Obviously, archaeology has had a huge impact on Egypt, and Rome is a is just a standard given when it comes to stuff like that. But what makes you say that it's had a bigger impact in Jerusalem than anywhere else in the world? Well, certainly ancient Rome and ancient Egypt and even ancient Mesopotamia you know, have had an archaeology has had an impact mainly in bringing to light much of what we didn't know about the past. But mm. Jerusalem is very different because what I found in piecing together the stories of these many interesting characters going back to the 1860s is that these excavators actually are the ones who made Jerusalem the contested city it is today. It was actually their actions underground which inspired the Christians, mainly working underground, inspired Jews to want to return to Jerusalem and build a state around Jerusalem. Uh, Mm -hmm. So Zionism, the state of Israel, are closely tied to these efforts to uncover the biblical past. And then uh, after 1967, many of these digs were focused on unearthing the, the glorious history of Jewish Jerusalem, which left out the Muslim and Christian narratives uh, to a certain extent. So from the beginning, whether they were Christian or, or Jewish or in a few cases Muslim, the, the archaeology going on has been wrapped up in some of the hottest politics and some of the, the hottest religious issues of the age. And that's what makes it so unique. And that's, I think, what gives archaeology its peculiar and fascinating flavor in Jerusalem, which is unlike any other place in the world. Wow. Okay. Well, this sounds so fascinating. And I got to say, archaeology really is about telling stories. That's often, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, we're finding stuff in order to tell a story or, or, or add, some, add some pages to an existing story. But archaeologists themselves aren't so good at telling those stories sometimes. Our publications are often incredibly dry with really long titles that nobody can read. And, and <laughs> it's just a bunch of stuff in there. So I'm really thankful that there are people like you that can collect all this information together and tell it in a way that that really brings these characters and these and these stories to light. So thank you for doing that, first off. I owe it a lot to the archaeologists in Jerusalem who took a lot of time. They are so busy and so overwhelmed <laughs> with the data they're unearthing. And you know, here I am asking the same dumb question about what, you know, what what shirt is that from? You know, is this Greek or is it Persian? Right. So I, I was really uh, impressed by the openness and the willingness of the archaeologists in Jerusalem to take people on tours, to really talk to them, to take time out of their professional lives to educate. So that part uh, I was found quite impressive. Nice, nice. All right. Well, is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want our listeners to know about this book or Jerusalem that uh, they might find helpful or interesting? Well, I I think the lesson I learned was that my interest in archaeology, it's it's great to write about archaeology, but I realized Mm -hmm. that it always, no matter where you're digging, it always involves politics and likely religion as well. And I no longer shy away from that. I actually discovered that Jerusalem is the fascinating place it is because the science and the religion and the politics are so mixed up and entangled with one another. And I'm no longer afraid of that. Uh, it's, it's actually, I find it fascinating. So I hope that people interested in archaeology, and certainly I hope that archaeologists will, will begin to be a little bit less anxious about discussing the political mm-hmm. ramifications of what they're doing uh, or the religious aspects that 
that these are part and parcel of this human endeavor, which can never be fully separated and nor should it be. Yeah, that's a good point. It's all part of the story, right? Yes. All right. Well, one last question. What other parts of the world interest you? I know you probably can't say about any future books you might be writing, but what other aspects of history and culture interest you that you might take a closer look at later on? Well, right now, I'm given the situation with the pandemic, I'm (laughs) a little focused on domestic uh, digs. (laughs) But uh, Central Asia remains to me one of the most fascinating and understudied places on Earth. There's so much there that has not been studied. And there are enormous civilizations and huge numbers of cities, not to mention towns and villages that have yet to be explored. So that's an area that I think will be uh, in the future is going to be more and more important in in archaeology. And China, of course, uh, is also central Mm -hmm. to our understanding of the development of Eurasian civilization. So those are the areas that I find most interesting in part, uh, particularly Central Asia, because it has been so ignored because mainly because the Soviets controlled it and not many Westerners knew about it. So mm-hmm. someday I hope to, to get back there and do more work there. Awesome. Well, look forward to that. All right. Well, this has been an interview with Andrew Lawler. Again, check out the links in the show notes, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 148. Or again, look down at your device if you're listening on a, on a tablet or a smartphone, and it'll be right there in the show notes. So again, thank you, Andrew, for coming on the show. Chris, it's been a great pleasure, great questions, and a good conversation. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening, and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.